And if you have a Bible with you today, let's turn to Mark chapter 7. We're in Mark chapter 7. And we're officially in the month of December, the month of Christmas. A couple of nights ago, we had our Christmas party for the staff, elders, and deacons here at Desert Springs. And that's always a great time for unhurried hanging out and conversations. And someone asked me, what Christmas traditions the Kellys have? And I said, none. I said that because I don't like to think of myself as a traditionalist. I said that because some of the things that we say we do, we do them inconsistently. Um, but I was only half joking because at best we, are only, we only have less traditions than some others. So we don't set up the Christmas tree on the same day every year. Some do, you know, right after Thanksgiving or something. We don't always read Luke 2 on Christmas Eve, but we sometimes do. We don't always watch a Christmas story on Christmas Day, but we often do. We don't always have eggnog in the house at Christmas time. We don't always have the same meals on Christmas Eve or Christmas Day. We don't always go caroling. I'm thankful when we don't. But that question that my friend asked me about what we do for Christmas traditions got me thinking, yes, about what we don't do, but also about the things that we do, the things that are unspoken or sometimes spoken traditions. We always start playing Christmas music on Thanksgiving Day, always. And we've never said that we do that, we just do it. We never take down the tree till after New Year's. This one is spoken. My wife insists that it's heresy if you take down the Christmas tree before New Year's Day. Kids don't open presents until after we read the Bible and pray together. But they can have at their stockings as soon as they wake up. Just a little rule we came up with, I don't know. On and on I could go. We have traditions that we don't really call traditions. And we all have traditions, even if we don't like to think of ourselves as traditionalists. Here in the first half of Mark 7, we have a passage that confronts traditionalism. Not tradition so much, but traditionalism. You say, what's the difference? Well, most of you, at least those of you my age and older, have seen Fiddler on the Roof. And remember that line? Without our traditions, our lives would be as shaky as a fiddler on the roof. Well, that's traditionalism. Or here's how one church historian talked about the difference between tradition and traditionalism, especially in the religious sphere. He said, tradition is the living faith of the dead. And that's good. The living faith of the dead. Traditionalism, though, is the dead faith of the living. I think that's right. In Mark 7, Jesus has a confrontation with traditionalists, these Jewish religious leaders, Pharisees and scribes. Scribes are experts in the law, part of the group of Pharisees. And here Jesus isn't against tradition, he's against traditionalism. And he's not against traditionalism because he has his own traditions that they don't like or do differently, but neither is he in a simple anti-traditionalist, a progressive. In some ways, Jesus is the quintessential traditionalist because he's uniquely eternal. He's had this plan from the beginning. He's a traditionalist in the right way, but what we'll see here is that Jesus gets to the heart of the matter of all this. He shows the heart of the problem that traditions can't fix. In fact, the problem talked about here is a problem that nothing external can fix. The passage that we'll look at today has three parts to it. First, the religious leaders have a concern, and then Jesus responds to it in two different ways. Here's the first part, the concern. Let's read verses 1 through 5 of chapter 7. Now, when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem... They saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands, holding to the tradition of the elders. 
And when they come from the marketplace, they do not, they do not eat unless they wash. And there were many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? So here's the Pharisees' concern. It's about unclean hands. It's the first part of this passage we'll look at today. The Pharisees' concern for unclean hands. Their concern was not about a lack of hygiene, nor a lack of manners. Their concern had to do with ceremonial uncleanness, religious uncleanness, ritual uncleanness. No small part of the Old Testament law had to do with what was unclean. What's clean, what's unclean? What to do if you become ceremonially unclean? That's a problem because if you're ceremonially unclean, then you can't go to the temple, you can't go to a tabernacle, you can't touch people or even be in public, at least until you become clean again with a ceremonial cleansing. The idea behind these practices was that God is pure and holy, and we are not. Leviticus said that he must be regarded as holy by all who draw near to him, especially the priests, especially the priests of the temple, and before that, the tabernacle. The Old Testament law required priests to ceremonially wash before doing their priestly duties. Again, it was a symbol and even a frequent reminder of God's holiness and their need for cleansing. However, the Old Testament law didn't require everyone to wash like this, just the priests. And it didn't require hand washing for every meal, but for priestly duties. So already we can draw the conclusion that the concern of the Pharisees about unclean hands is not one that's drawn immediately from Scripture. It's a tradition. And Mark emphasizes that in his parenthetical comments, even before Jesus addresses it in the story. Mark in verse 3 tells us they were holding to the tradition of the elders and many other traditions. Verse 4. Many other traditions they observe. Their traditions extend beyond hand washing. You're probably not surprised to know. Mark says here in verse 4, it involved the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. This is all about getting things clean and keeping the clean things clean. And keeping straight what's clean and what isn't clean. So, let's get a clean couch. Let's call it a clean couch. Let's keep it clean. You don't sit on that couch unless you're clean, you, unless you've washed. We really need some more background to all this because it's foreign to, to our thinking, foreign to our culture. You should know that the Old Testament has 613 commands in it. But over the years, oral and written traditions were passed down to situationalize those commands. That is, to give test cases, to know when you did and did not do one of these 613 commands, to know when you did and did not violate one of these 613 commands. These test cases were eventually compiled in a book called the Mishnah, the Mishnah. That book, the Mishnah, came after the time of Jesus. It wasn't compiled until the second century A.D., but most of the traditions and teachings were around well before Jesus. And of course, you can see them uh, in living color here in Mark 7. In the Mishnah, there's direction for hand washing, the kind of hand washing the Pharisees are talking about here. The Mishnah says that one is to pour water out from a cup or glass twice over the right hand and then twice over the left hand, care being taken that the unwashed hands do not touch the water used for the washing. Then the hands are dried with a towel, and then it goes on to give directions about where to put the towel, etc., etc., etc. Now, before we roll our eyes so hard that we get whiplash, 
at the silliness, we should try to think like a Pharisee for just a little bit. That's, that's dangerous to do for too long, but it's good for us to do just for a bit. It's good for us to attempt a little bit of understanding, if not sympathy, with their thinking and traditions. Yes, they would say, hand washing was given for priests only in the Old Testament law, but what's good for the priest is good for the gander. It's good for the priest, it's good for the people. Why not extend that to all of God's people, not just the priests? That's a pro-people move. That's not elitist. That's pretty good. Maybe they would say, yes, hand-washing was for priestly duties, not everyday meals, but why not extend God's worship and his ways to everyday life? Why not practice purity and see this lived out day in and day out, even multiple times a day? As for the specifying and situationalizing of God's commandments, well, they might say to us, haven't you? You, New Testament Christian, haven't you sometimes wished for real black and white categories with God's commands? I mean, how do you know when you've shown enough hospitality in, in 2014? How do you know if you've read the Bible with your family enough this year? How do you know if you've been sacrificial enough? How do you know if you've prioritized meeting together with the saints enough this year? Wouldn't it be nice to just be told exactly and precisely and without ambiguity what God wants you to do? Have eight people over for dinner every year. Read the Bible together as a family 13 minutes per day at least five days a week. Help out these kind of people, X, Y, and Z. Don't help out these kind of people, A, B, C, D, and, and whoever you give money to, give them this amount. Missing church six times per year for recreation and vacation is fine, but no more. I think most of us would like that kind of specific parameter set for God's commandments. We would know whether a biblical commandment would get a check mark next to it or an X. Pass, fail, black and white. I think they'd also say, shouldn't we be specific and precise when it comes to God and his ways? I think they would say, God says don't touch something. Isn't it wise then to, to put up a fence a mile away so that no one touches it and no one's tempted to, to go near? What's wrong with that? I think they would say, these traditions have been handed down from long ago, and who are we to say otherwise about what God's people should do? I think if we think like that, then we'll be prepared for their question in verse 5. Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And if we can remotely sympathize with that question, then we can begin to appreciate how shocking Jesus' response was. The second part of the story is Jesus' concern about empty commandments. Empty commandments. Look down at verse 6. And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you, hypocrites, as it's written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. Notice that Jesus responds to their concern about, about these unclean hands, essentially by ignoring it. 
And instead, he brings up a concern of infinitely greater importance. And by doing this, he's not sidestepping or he's not, he's not deflecting the question like many, like many politicians are so good at doing come election time. No, Jesus' logic here is rock solid, and he dismantles the religious leaders. He's getting to the heart of the problem. And he does so by quoting from Isaiah 29, but not before calling them hypocrites. Hypocrites. Now, what is a hypocrite? Someone who's a fake, right? Someone who's inconsistent. The Pharisees weren't inconsistent. They were, they were known for their consistency. They were known for their devotion and for that devotion spreading through all of life, except the heart. They were inconsistent in heart. And that's why Jesus quotes from Isaiah 29. He says, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. What a scathing indictment. They're hypocrites. Their lips honor God. Their hearts are far from God. Their worship is vain or empty or nothing. Why? Because they're teaching is merely the commandments of men. Dressed up as the commandments of God. It's a scathing indictment, but it's also a scary possibility that, that we too could be guilty of what Isaiah 29 talked about. It's possible that we too would honor God with our lips and our singing and our hearts be far from him. It's easy to pray one minute and then go and sin the next. It's easy for us to come to church and yet be filled with bitterness, anger, as we're doing so. It's a scary reality. It's possible we, too, often worship in vain. But back to these Pharisees, Jesus confronts them by bringing up just one of the ways that they've twisted God's word. It's a fine way, he says, a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. What is this fine way? called Corbin, verse 11. This was something that they invented where you would designate some of your land as dedicated to God. You'd keep it, but you'd say it's dedicated to God. And then it wasn't really considered yours. There's nothing wrong with that, except that it was used to get out of helping dear old mom and dad in their aging years. So a son could say to an aged and impoverished parent, sorry, I can't help you. I don't got anything. And maybe the dad would say, but what about all that land? Can't you, can't you spare some of it that we might, that we might till it and, and, and farm it? Can't you give us some? Sorry, that's been given to God. Corbin. And they would say, maybe the dad would say, can't you ungive it? Can you undedicate it? And they would say, no, no, the scribes, these experts of the law say, no, it's a vow. And you can't go against a vow. That's in the Bible, you know. The Pharisees and the scribes were all fine with this. In fact, they encouraged it and maybe even invented it. But it creates a massive problem with the fifth commandment, according to Jesus. The fifth commandment is honor your father and your mother. To use a made-up law or tradition in order to not honor mom or dad is hypocrisy. It's teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. So Jesus makes this conclusion. Verse 13, Mark tells us, Thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. They were making void 
the word of God. And many such things you do, he says. This was just one of many. Elsewhere in the other gospel accounts, you can see many occasions where Jesus confronts other things these Pharisees were doing that were added rules, that were rigid externalism. So the heart of the problem in first century Judaism is not with unwashed hands, but with tradition parading itself as the commandments of God. We could put it in these Protestant terms. Jesus was a sola scriptura kind of guy. Scripture only. Not scripture and tradition like the Roman Catholic Church still insists, but scripture only. There's an interesting parallel here, right? The Jews of Jesus' time believed in scripture and tradition. And Jesus is stripping tradition away as a source of authority. Jesus is showing that That when push came to shove, their commandments not only competed with God's word, but but trumped God's word. The fifth commandment could go out the window in order that you keep your land in the name of Corbin. Now, we got to apply this to our context carefully, properly. Probably none of us in this room have the temptation to rigidly follow the Mishnah, but we're all in danger of treating ideas and ideals that are not God's word as though they were God's word, as though God had said. And in the process, we not only raise our ideas and ideals to the level of God's ideas and ideals, but we also lower his ideas and ideals down to us. Traditions are not bad. Some are in the Bible, like the Lord's Supper. That's a tradition the church does. I mean, every week we get together and we do the same stuff. It's it's tradition. Some things, though, are not in the Bible and can still be good. If they're in the Bible, we do them. All of us, Christians, all of us do them. If they're not in the Bible, even if they're good, we can't demand them of others. Just like the specifics I mentioned about our Christmas traditions. I can't make my traditions your traditions. Maybe you don't even celebrate Christmas. You believe in the birth and you think, ah, we're not going to do a once a year thing. We're going to say it's every day, every year. Okay, that's fine. Traditions are not bad, but if they're not in the Bible, we can't demand them of others. Preferences, too, are not bad. We all have them. They're inevitable. But we can't raise preferences to the level of divine authority. This is especially important for church life. The kind of music we do. The the level of sound. How loud it is or quiet it is. When we meet, 9 and 1045 on Sundays. Why? Is that because it's in the Bible? No, it's not. It just seems like a convenient time. Uh, If we had the services at slightly different times, we'd bump into Calvary traffic more often. That's part of the equation, you know, just just good old wisdom. What we wear to church, why this morning I wear jeans and a sport coat? Well, that's what I usually wear. Can I wear a tie? Yeah, I I can. I remember when I was told, uh, I came to the church and someone told me one Sunday as I had a tie on, oh, we don't wear ties here. And I said, why? He said, because we're not legalists. <laughs> and I said, well, good, I'll wear a tie. <laughs> but the architecture of the church, so many things on and on we could list here. We have to remember that so many things are, are decisions that elders make or, or, or leaders have to make, and, and it's based on wisdom and consensus, and, and yet we fully realize in any given decision, in any choice we make, there are people outside of that choice for their preference and desire. They, they would rather have it another way. Certain applications of God's commandments are not only okay, but necessary. In our everyday Christian living, we'll decide to do certain things and not do certain things, not because it's explicit in God's word, but because we think this is the right application of God's word. There are certain movies you might see that I won't. 
And there's other, there are other movies that other people won't see and can't believe that I would. Whether a Christian partakes of alcohol or whether he puts up a fence in front of that and, and says, no, I, I don't want that temptation. Fences are not bad. Fences around God's commandments to keep us from the commandment or to give us some stalling time, they're not bad. We just can't make our fences commandments. We must allow for flexibility where God's word has not been specific. I can recommend, I can advise, I can encourage you with what I do or what I think is best, but I can't demand of you what God has not. We're in serious danger if we elevate our preferences and principles and policies to the level of God's word or his commandments. And here's the real danger, is that we won't word it that way if or when we do. We won't say, oh, my preferences are on par with God's commandments. Here's the 11th commandment, what I think about music. We won't word it that way. We'll just complain, be smug, harbor bitterness in our hearts, be angry, put down, condescend. And in doing so, we will take God's word in our pocket, we will play with it, we will add to it, we will put things on par with it. We may also wish that we had more specifics. We may wish that we had a Christian Mishnah. Isn't that fun to say, Christian Mishnah? <laughs> but God has not given us such specifics. We probably want such specifics if we do for the wrong reasons. Well, back to Jesus. Jesus continues the discussion, but not with the Pharisees. He takes advantage of this situation for a teaching moment, a public teaching moment with the crowd. And here he digs even deeper into the heart of the problem. The third part of the story is Jesus' concern about unclean hearts. The Pharisees had a concern for unclean hands. Jesus is concerned about unclean hearts. Look at verse 14. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand, there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled. Mark tells us, thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. Some have said that the Pharisees had outside-in kind of thinking. They had an outside-in approach to life and religion. And Jesus instead taught about an inside-out approach to life and religion. In verse 15, he says, there's nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. The Pharisees had thought that if you came to a, a supper with unclean hands, because you were at the marketplace and you touched some unclean things, because you maybe you, you handled some pork, you touched an unclean thing, because you were near someone who was sick or someone who had a, a disease, a skin tag even, that can be unclean. And, and so you touch that person even unknowingly, your hands are unclean. And then when you sit down to the supper, you touch your food and you make that food unclean. And then when you eat that food, you become unclean. But Jesus says to that, no, 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 no. No food goes into a man and makes him unclean. Nothing outside can make the heart unclean. It's a principle that goes beyond just food. 
No government defiles the heart. No education or lack thereof is the source of the problem. It's not the man getting us down and causing us to sin. It's not entertainment. These externals can be more or less conducive to exposing my sin, but they are not the cause of my sin. Jesus isn't saying that there's nothing bad out there. He's not saying at all that, that nothing should be, invo- should be avoided. He's saying instead the problem is a problem of the heart. The problem is indeed a problem of the heart. I think most parents recognize early on that a baby is not a tabula rasa, a blank slate. Parenting is important and influential, but but it isn't sovereign. Kids have some bad things in them, don't they? Yes, some things are learned. Some bad things or good things are learned. They've been modeled. They've been taught, and hence they've been imitated and followed. But some things are just in there and just show up. All four of my kids have come out of the womb angry. (laughs) Angry, right? I, I don't blame them. It's cold. It's bright. It's not what they're used to. It's scary. But they've come out angry. It's not an innocent cry. I mean, it's a good thing they're not stronger, right? A lot of doctors would be dead and moms too. (laughs) Or lying. No parent has to teach their kids lying. Kids invent it on their own. What if I said something else? What if I told them, no, I didn't do it? They didn't learn that from mom or dad necessarily. They, They come up with it on their own. The problem is a problem of the heart. The heart of the problem is a problem of the heart. Jesus gets rather graphic to make his point. Verse 18, in the middle there, he says, Whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled. Literally, he says, it goes in the latrine. It goes in the toilet. Notice, this is with the disciples. This is a bit of bathroom talk with the boys, I think. I wonder if the disciples kind of giggled when he said, think about it, guys. You eat, it goes in the stomach, you poop, it's out. It didn't go to the heart. He's speaking physiologically and also, more importantly, spiritually and theologically. Dirty heart, dirty food does not make dirty hearts. Before we can keep going down that road, though, Mark gives us a parenthetical comment in verse 19. And here he really injects a whole lot of later New Testament teaching. He says, thus he declared all foods clean. In the Old Testament, some foods were considered unclean. Shrimp, pork, etc. We don't have the time to talk about why God set it up that way with clean and unclean foods. But we must say that it's a distinction that's not part of the new covenant. It's not part of the new covenant. It's not part of the Jesus system. It's not part of Christianity. Just read Acts 10 on your own to see Peter come to terms with this. A good Jewish boy, he's surprised to have a dream where there's all kinds of pork and other unclean things. And Jesus is saying, take up and eat. And he puts up a fight for a little bit until Jesus insists, and then he gets it. He gets it. Jesus declared all foods clean. End of parenthesis. Look at verse 20. Now he starts quoting Jesus again. What comes out of a person is what defiles him. And here he's not talking about physiological stuff that comes out of him, but from within, out of the heart of man, verse 21 These things come. And then he lists 13 things. 13 things that are common to humanity, even if you don't think you've done all of them. When it says, out of the heart of man, that's not just some men, some women. 
In the Greek, there's a definite article before man. It's out of the heart of the man, humanity, all people, without distinction. These things come out of the heart. Evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery. A lot of these are things that even our society frowns upon or even hopes that they would never do, especially murder, maybe also stealing. But then Jesus goes on to list other things that are more tolerated and celebrated even to some extent in in our culture, like coveting. You can say to your friend, man, I'd kill for that car. I'd kill for that car of yours. And he'll giggle. He won't, he won't do that. He won't say, oh, 10th commandment, my soul, oh no. You can say to your Christian friend, man, I love that. I'd love to have that house. I want that. I wish I had that. That's coveting. We all do it, partly because we all seem to tolerate it, sometimes even celebrate it. But then wickedness is mentioned, deceit, little white lies, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. Evil thoughts and foolishness function like bookends here. These are general categories of sin with more specific ones in between. We should notice that this list is diverse from one angle. Murderers are listed among with covetors, covetors. That's a diverse list of sins and sinners. Some of these are famously wicked. Others are quite common. But we should also notice that this list is a single list. These things go together. These things are related. These things spring from the same human heart. Even if you've never committed murder, Jesus says you've committed murder in your heart if you've ever hated someone. Ever called someone a fool in your heart? Well, it's the same sinful instinct that causes a man to strike another one down. These things go together. These things come from within. Verse 23, and they defile a person. Jeremiah 17 tells us us that the heart is deceitful above all things. It is desperately sick. Who can understand it? And yet Jeremiah 17 also says that I, the Lord, search the heart. Isn't that scary? Our hearts are deceitful, sneaky, deceptive. We don't think we're sinning even when we are. We can't understand our hearts. We don't know how many sins we've done. We don't know when our best of actions are riddled with the worst of motives or even just a tinge of bad Motive, but the Lord does. The Lord searches the heart. There's a problem. The Pharisees were right that God is holy and we need cleansing. But their made-up ritual of ceremonially washing your hands before every meal, it's like having cancer and treating the cancer with a pimple solution on your skin. It's like having cancer and saying, ah, tomorrow I'll go to Walgreens and get some of those OxyPads. It's not going to do a thing. But what is the, the ointment, the treatment that we all need? If you notice... This is where the story ends, verse 23. A new story begins in verse 24. Not related, really. So in our passage today, Jesus identifies the true human problem that we all have without here, for now, letting us know about the solution. The solution. I'm going to have you turn to two more passages this morning to see the solution. We have a big Bible, and just because one passage doesn't tell us what the solution is doesn't mean we're without hope. So turn with me to Psalm 24. 
Turn to Psalm 24. We'll look at one Old Testament passage, one New Testament passage that have to do with the need and also the solution. Psalm 24, starting in verse 3, David writes, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? Who can enter into God's presence, is essentially what he's saying. And he answers, He who has clean hands, and that has nothing to do with really washing your hands. That means clean actions. That means good deeds. He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. He doesn't say who's pretty clean, who has kind of a pure heart, who most of the time does what is true and not false. So who can enter into God's presence? None of us. None of us. We don't have clean hands. We don't have a pure heart. And we have sworn by what is false. The passage goes on, though, to talk about the solution. Verse 7, look at that. These are familiar words, especially at Christmas time, especially if you're familiar with Handel's Messiah. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Handel was right to see that these words are about Jesus. They're about Jesus and his coming. He's the king of glory. He's the one who could enter into God's presence, fully enter into God's presence, and even sacrificially enter into God's presence as a holy priest. He had true, clean hands, pure heart. He never swore by what is false. There was no deceit found in his mouth. He's the one, the only one who can enter into God's presence and make a way by which we follow him in. Now turn to John 13. John chapter 13. A passage about Jesus washing the disciples' feet. How is that related to the cleansing that we need? If anything, it sounds like more of the same pharisaical external washing but it's not. John 13, starting in verse 4, skip a few words there and see. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Surely it goes the other way, right? You're the master, we're the servants. You don't wash my feet, do you? We wash yours. Jesus answered him, What I'm doing, you do not understand now. But afterward, after the cross and resurrection, you will understand. Proof that Peter doesn't understand it now. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me, no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only then, but also my hands and my head. Oftentimes we read this passage and we think that it's about being humble, being a servant, serving others, deferring to them, not being quick to take the lead or take the prominent spot. Yeah. But Jesus is far more than an example to us here in this passage. He's the preeminent servant. He's telling Peter not just what he should do to the other disciples. He's showing Peter what he needs. The foot washing is really a symbol of the cross. It's a symbol of what's to come. It's a symbol of what he's going to do. The fingerprints of the cross are all over John 13. We don't have the time to look at them all. But, but 
But his betrayal is referenced in, in John 13. He's going away, it says in John 13. His time is coming to an end, it says in John 13. On and on it goes. John 13 sits in the shadow of the cross. Jesus is giving them an illustration to prepare them for the coming of the cross and the cleansing that they need and the cleansing that only he in his cross can give. A cleansing that later in Hebrews is talked about like this. Here's what Christians celebrate and enjoy. It says there, let us draw near to God. Enter into his presence with a true heart in full assurance of faith. With our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. 1 John 1.9 tells us that if we confess our sins, if we acknowledge ourselves to be sinners then he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Revelation 7 pictures heaven in the saints that are there. It says they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. The problem is far greater than you think. And the problem is you. It's your heart. Where do these things come from, you say? That, that anger, where did that come from? That put down, where did that come from? That jealousy, where did that come from? I didn't stir it up. And you say, well, I'm around jealous people. So they can insert jealousy into your heart? Is it simply a, a matter of external observation and imitation? Or is there something more going on? Is it a matter of the heart? Indeed, it is a matter of the heart, which means then that rules and regulations are not the fix. The answer is not in rules and regulations that we can easily follow with check marks and check marks and check marks so that we feel cleansed, feel approved. Well, that's most religions for you. But it's not Christianity. Christianity insists the answer is not externalism. It's not the externals. The problem is not external, therefore the fix is not in the externals. But most of us, we tap into external religion quite often. Especially before we're Christians, but, but not, not even after we're, we're Christians. We, we still go back to it sometimes, don't we? This is what I mean. The gym you go to, the running you do, the, the body you pursue, the fashion you have, the, the clothes you wear, the, the shoes you get, the shower you take and the makeup you put on and the, the grooming you do, the car you buy, the house you want, the money that you humbly flaunt, the things that you have, the gadgets that you have, that the things that you are that make you, you. It's all externals, isn't it? It's a way of being accepted, justified in the eyes of the world, and maybe even in the eyes of God. But none of that is the answer. The answer is in Jesus and in Jesus alone and in his cleansing that comes from the cross. The miracle of miracles is that we could be washed white with blood. It's a mixed metaphor, but it works, doesn't it? We're washed white in the blood of the lamb when we receive that gift through faith. When we confess, when we call out to him, when we simply believe and believe that it's so and believe that it's true for us. To believe that he died, not just as an example, but to believe that he died in our place to bear the just punishment of God on our behalf. This is the gospel that we hold out to you, non-Christian. Non-Christian friend, we hold this out to you and we say, take it, believe, receive it. It is good and glorious. Christian, let's remember our cleansing 
Listen to this in 1 Corinthians 6 where the Corinthians were reminded what they were. Paul there says, do not be deceived, neither sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. You used to be this. You used to do these things. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified. Your account before God has been wiped clear. In fact, all the debt that was there on your account has been replaced with all of Christ's riches. And not only that, not only has there been a cleansing on your account, but there's been a change that's being wrought. It's starting. As soon as you got that new heart that believed, you also got a heart that desired God's ways And he intends to grow you in those ways, however slowly it takes, however messy it feels. We are being changed. Let's remember that. Let's remember what we used to be. And let's keep not being it. I think one application of this passage, especially at Christmas time, has to do with relationships. I can't help but think of that in this passage Relationships is one of those contexts in which we're being changed. We're helped by others. We grow together. We refine each other. But relationships are also one of the ways in which we're painfully reminded sometimes that our sin is still there. Our hearts still spew stuff that's not of God. Our accounts have been cleansed, but our hearts are still bent We should remember that this Christmas time. We should remember it's not what goes into us or what is around us that defiles us. Our defilement comes from within. The problem is us. It's worse than we thought. Only Jesus can cleanse it. Only Jesus can change it. He hasn't changed us perfectly and completely just yet. So be suspicious of yourself. Be suspicious of your heart. It's still deceitful, it's still wicked, it's still at work, and we must put it to death for Jesus' sake. Mortify or put to death the deeds of the flesh that you may live. Let's pray. Oh, Father, our God, we thank you for your word and for the Jesus that we see in these pages. We thank you for his truth. We thank you, Lord, that you have spoken and given us truth. We pray you'd keep us from adding to it, either explicitly or subconsciously almost. Keep us from adding to your word as a church. Keep us, Lord, from knowing the difference. Uh, Keep us, Lord, knowing the difference between preference and your principles, your commandments. Lord, grow us in grace and truth. Show us again Jesus and his grace and help us to know that our sin is great, but his grace is greater than our sin. Help us to celebrate that glorious gospel today. Help us to hold it out to a dying world this week. Help us, Lord, to believe and help our unbelief For your namesake, Lord Jesus, we pray this. Amen.